passage of scripture today. Um, that is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Let's stand together as we read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that, that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the great privilege of opening your word. Um, Lord, you have, you have revealed it to us, and you've given us the capacity, Lord, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit to understand it. And so, Lord, today I ask that you would, you would help us, Lord, to, to see what it is that you want us to see. I, I'd ask, Lord, that our hearts would be humble and receptive, teachable, and Lord, that you would use me simply as your mouthpiece, Lord, to reflect your truth to your people. Lord, you are a gracious God, and uh, we don't deserve this kind of counsel and this help, but Lord, since you've given it to us, Lord, may we make the most of this time and honor you and learn from you. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. For those of you that uh, may be visiting with us today, we are working our way through the book of Ephesians, and uh, we start at the beginning, just work our way through, and we are in a section uh, that is really the second half of Ephesians, verse, chapters 1 through 3 are the, the doctrinal side of things, where Paul is laying down who we are in Christ and how that happened, and now we're moving into the, the practical side of things, and uh, if you probably caught as we were reading that, uh, he talks about our walk, and this is living our lives now. Uh, based on the truth that he has revealed about our salvation. And so we are in this section where the emphasis, the real, the real topic, the real goal that he's establishing is this idea of a church being united. And uh, that is all going to be absolutely critical and necessary for what he's about to say from verses 17 on. 
because he's going to get into some specific areas of church life um, that are going to need not only the foundation of, of doctrine, but also the understanding of how a church is to work together. And so today, um, uh, it's important that we begin to look at this idea of unity from the perspective of the gifts that God has given us. Now, I would say for over the past 30 years or so, hundreds, if not thousands of books have been written, given counsel to pastors and church leaders on how to grow the church. Um, you know, I don't get it so much here at Gateway, but in other churches that I've, I've been a part of, um, almost every day I'm getting, I want to say, Christian ministry junk mail. I mean, just tons of, you know, here's this, and, and here's this program, and, and come to this seminar, and all this kind of stuff. There's just a, a push, and there's, there's a market for, for people who are wanting to grow their church. And so here's a summary of the kinds of advice that has been given. If you want to grow your church, um, first of all, copy what we did at XYZ Church. Okay? I just think through that um, because here's, here's how it plays out. Um, XYZ Church is successful. You want to be successful too. So why don't you go to that church and find out what they're doing at that church so that you can implement what they're doing and the same thing will happen in your church. Well, the problem with that is the assumption that if you do what XYZ Church is doing, that your church is going to grow. And as if simply copying an organizational method is somehow gonna answer the question. I remember being at the, the Shepherds Conference at John MacArthur's church, Grace Community Church. Um, at that point in time, John MacArthur was a pastor that I was really learning under from a distance because I, I resonated with some of the things that he was saying. And so I went to the conference and it was, it was really refreshing. Um, the first thing that came out of the mouths of those who were leading the conference was this. They said, listen, if you're coming here looking for some quick answers to grow your church, you're not gonna find it. In fact, we do not want you to go away trying to copy how we do ministry here. We can't necessarily explain how our church has grown numerically. God just did that in his own way, in his own providence. But what we want to do is we want to teach you what scripture says a church should be doing. And if you implement the things that God says a church should be doing, then you will be faithful as pastors uh, to the calling of, of leading that church. And that for me was just so refreshing because a lot of people would say, oh, that conference is there because you know John MacArthur wants everyone to come and hear how he does it to grow your church just the same way. And that's not, that's not it at all. And so that was very refreshing. Yet, uh, it is common. I was actually asked a number of years ago to fly out to Hawaii to go to a particular person's church and actually, this is like a privileged elite group of guys going out there and to hang around with this pastor for two weeks to see what he was doing and how he ticked so that you could go back and do the exact same thing and whoosh, your church is gonna grow. There is this emphasis out there, friends, that if you copy what XYZ Church does, you will experience growth. The second one is this. If you implement XYZ program, we guarantee results. 
And so every year, church is looking, what program are we going to do this year? What's going to be our emphasis this year? What's out there, you know, and the, the, the different, you know, um, curriculum-based things that are out there that we can do as a program, we can do as a church, and we can drum it all up, and everyone's going to get excited and have this program. And, and, and literally, you get these pieces of paper that come in the mail that says, if you implement this program, we guarantee your church will grow. And this is ultimately, friends, being a marketing approach to church growth that mimics how you grow a business where growth is measured by the product of attendance and involvement. How many people are sitting in your pew? In our case, how many people are sitting in the blue chairs? A third one is this. In order for your church to grow, you must be less churchy, less preachy, and more relevant. Well, first of all, we don't have a church, so we're doing okay with that one, right? Uh, a building, I'm saying, right? Um, less preachy, no, sorry about that. Um, more relevant, well, I don't know that I can be more relevant than the Word of God, because the Word of God is relevant, okay? And we need to let the Word of God speak so that its relevance can be heard. And the problem here is there's this emphasis on adjusting uh, your message to accommodate your audience by watering down God's truth and being more application-oriented rather than simply walking through the word of God and revealing it and allowing it to impact the lives of those that are there. And oftentimes this has a real worldly emphasis that avoids dealing with the difficult topics, um, the hard topics. Here's a, here's a fourth one. If you want to see growth in your church, you must shorten your sermon some of you are saying amen to that one, right? <laughs> Relax the environment and spend more time in the arts and worship or something along those lines. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a place for those things, um, but not at the expense of the preached word. Now, you might say, well, that's, that's pretty arrogant, Rod. You know, you're saying it. You're the, you're the teaching pastor here. Of course you're going to say that because that's what you do. And what I want to emphasize today is that, is that God has, has given us um, some great instructions on church growth. With all the books that are written out there by well-meaning people, with all the ideas that, that come in the mail to a church or to a pastor or to a, a leadership in the church, the best resource that we have on church growth, most of you have sitting on your laps right now. It's called the Bible. And one of the greatest and most helpful passages or books in the Bible on church growth and how to, uh, to pursue church growth is actually the book that we're studying right now, and that is the book of Ephesians. In this passage that we read today, and we're going to be focusing on verses 7 through 16, Paul outlines God's plan for church growth, and in particular for God's plan for church growth that results in unity. Because this whole passage is about unity. If you remember, it started out with attitudes for unity. Last week, we looked at theology for unity, and we, we looked at those seven you know, ones that are there, one faith, one Lord, one spirit, one hope, and, and so on. And, and now we're looking at this idea of these gifts that are pushing the church toward this, this unity. Not that it isn't already united, it is, but we are to... Not create unity, but to do what? Maintain the unity in the, uh, in the 
unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now notice the following emphases in the passages that I'm about to read. Look at verse 13 of our text. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the, the, the idea there is mature manhood, the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by the winds of doctrine. Again, this is what happens when someone is mature. They're no longer that way. Verse 15, it says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Again, there's this idea of maturity that is, is, that is present. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So in summary, we can say a couple of things. We can say um, that the idea here in this passage is growth, maturity, and full stature, but this growth that is being talked about is not numerical growth. Nowhere in this passage are you seeing numerical growth being talked about here. The kind of growth that's being talked about here is growth in maturity. And friends, church growth, as far as God is concerned, is a growth of maturity. He will handle the growth in numbers. That's a very American thing. You know, how big is your church? Um, well, if everyone squeezes together and we, you know, what do you mean by how big and why is that important? Our job as elders, my job as a teaching pastor, is not to grow the church numerically. If God so chooses to do that, that's his purpose. That's, that's what he's going to do. Our job is to grow the church in maturity. And that is what we're called to. And that really is the priority. So today, as we go through this passage, we want to unfold these gifts and these gifts that are taking us down this road to, to unity, and we'll see that this unity is seen as a church that is mature because of this process that has taken place. And really from verses 7 all the way through the end, we have this, this kind of upward trajectory taking place. So let's begin by talking about what I'm calling a gifted membership, a gifted membership. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then you have this parenthetical statement. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He, also, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now I want to focus in on uh, verses, verses 8 through 10 to begin with here and just say what Paul is doing here is he's, he's, he's leaning on uh, Psalm 68 and this picture of a, a victorious king coming into a city as a victor, as a conqueror of another army or another city, and he's coming into that city with all those who are captives behind him. This is this victory march. And as he comes with the captives, those that are now slaves, he also comes in with the spoils of war. 
And that is the picture. Here is this victorious king who has all of these spoils of war. And usually what happens there is that the king takes that into the treasury and he keeps it for himself. But when it comes to Jesus, the victory that he has accomplished by virtue of the cross is not necessarily to keep all those gifts for himself. It is to give those gifts to men. That's the idea. That's the picture that he's presenting here from this victory march. Okay? And so this ascending and this descending, as far as Christ is concerned, he ascended into heaven. The descending is not him descending down into the lowest parts of hell, which is a teaching that is out there in in a charismatic land, okay? The, the, the descending here is simply Christ's incarnation. He descended to the earth. He left the, the pleasure and the comforts of heaven and descended by virtue of the incarnation to the earth. He went to the cross, was victorious, and then ascended back into heaven as this victorious king. So this is the foundation and the, the basis now for what he is saying in verse 8 and what he will say as we move along. Verse 7 now says this, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So everyone who is a child of God has been blessed by the, the gift that has been granted to them by God, in particular by Christ in this passage. So there are gifted then individuals individuals who have been gifted by Christ with a particular gift and maybe more than one gift. In other words, Christ gives each member of his church the ability to perform the tasks that God has called them to. I just wanna pause here. If everyone who is a child of God has been given a gift, then you have a responsibility to exercise that gift and to grow in your understanding of that gift and to be, become mature in the exercise of that gift. Not just to sit dormant and say, well, I have a gift. We're supposed to do something with it. So Paul emphasizes in Romans 12, 6 this, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, talking about his own gift, here's what Paul says. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. So he, he recognizes that even his gift of apostleship was a gift from Christ for the health and the maturity and the unity of the church. So these gifts are given to all men. So he begins there, but then he builds on that now in verse 11. And here are now these gifts that are uniquely gifts that are given to the leaders in the church. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. Now this is a central verse in Paul's logic. Having explained that, that every believer is gifted for ministry, Paul now is focusing on teaching Ministry. Notice these, these titles here, and I'm going to put the first two together, apostles and prophets. Although they, were, they had different roles, in, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he groups them together. Okay, Paul understands that the apostles refers to the twelve, that the prophets refer to those who preached uh, in, association, excuse me, in association with those apostles, and he understands that Although the apostles and prophets um, 
had different roles and functions in the church that they, they actually had kind of a unifying role in laying the foundation of the gospel for the church. So turn, uh, just look in your Bibles right there if you have Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2.20. talks there about being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the apostles and prophets laid the foundation of the gospel. And so if, if a church is attempting to, to be built, it must continue to be built on the same foundation. To lay a new foundation is to say that the old foundation was insufficient. And to lay a new foundation means you're actually laying down a new church because you have a new foundation. The apostles laid that foundation for the church along with the prophets. Then you have these evangelists. How did the Ephesian church come to know Christ is a question. Look at chapter 4, verse 20. It says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. And well, what is he talking about? Well, just before that, he is emphasizing the behavior of the unbelievers. They're callous, they're given to sensuality, they're, they're greedy to practice impurity. That is not how they came to Christ, and that is not how they were left having come to Christ. They were not behaving like the ungodly. That's not how they learned Christ. They learned Christ by virtue of the ministry of the evangelists in Asia Minor who went into cities, who proclaimed the gospel, who stayed a while until that initial church was, was, was kind of established, and then they would move on to the next place. In our minds, we have a stereotypical idea of what an evangelist is. In fact, you might use the word tele-evangelist before it to give that stereotypical idea of here's a guy who's supposed to be a minister of the gospel, who kind of comes, blows into a place, does his thing, and then blows out again. And that's not the picture of an evangelist that we have here. The picture of an evangelist is one that goes into a city, and as, as far as the strategy was concerned, they preach the gospel, and they stay a while until that church is established and formed, and then they move on. And so we can say that the, the apostles and prophets laid the foundation of the gospel. The evangelists spread the news of the gospel. And friends, I think it's, it's important for us, even as we think through these things, to recognize that we need to rescue back this, this word evangelist from what it has been distorted to today. When you ask most, per, most people on the street, you know, what is an evangelist? Their, automat, their, their first thought, unless they're, you know, a true believer walking with God, their first thought is going to be what they've seen on TV. That's what they're going to think. Some guy who just gets in your face and, and yells at you and preaches at you. Um, but that is not necessarily a, a healthy picture at all. But they're willing to go to the hard places. They're willing to... Uh, labor faithfully in proclaiming the gospel in those particular locations. Now, there's some debate as to whether this is actually a, uh, a role that is still present today or whether it's something that passed away. I think it's still present today, and I think the people that, that would typically model this would be those that are pioneer missionaries. 
those that are going into, for example, um, places where, where there are unreached people, and they're saying, you know, we're going to go in, and, and our goal here is to evangelize. This is our calling. This is our purpose. This is our desire. And they spend, if you talk about New Tribes missions, for example, they'll spend seven years in this process of, of finding a place, you know, learning somewhat the culture, getting to the place, living among the people, trying to translate the Bible, and then even then trying to share the gospel. It's a, it's a long process. It's not just blowing in in your jet, hopping out and saying, oh, you know, God loves you, and then leaving. This is, this is labor, hard labor, when there are very few believers present with you. Then there is this next group, the shepherds and teachers. They're the ones that are called to build up the body in the gospel. Now you'll notice here that shepherds and teachers are together because in the Greek language they are constructed there to be together. This is one role, shepherds, teachers, or pastor, teacher, as often it has been identified. All right? So they're the ones given the responsibility to care for the flock um, and giving oversight. So you have the foundation of the apostles They laid the foundation for the gospel. The evangelists went out and established churches with the gospel, stayed a while till the church was was there, and then a pastor was either raised in that context or a pastor was brought, and his job was then to shepherd that flock that was there. Okay? That's the idea. So they are the the ones with the ongoing uh, teaching ministry in the church who have as their responsibility the building of God's people in the gospel. Now what's, what's central at all of these gifts, friends, is that they are all teaching gifts. They are all word-centered gifts. They are, as John Stott says, the greatest need of the church universal. Without word ministry, the body of Christ, although gifted, will not have a comprehension of how to exercise those gifts. There's a need for word ministry. And so here, God, through the Apostle Paul, lays out how this unfolds. Everyone in the church has been given a gift, but the leaders in particular are given these these word gifts. And they're there for a reason. That's why in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. This is the responsibility um, that is not to be taken lightly by anyone who is handling the word of God. Faithful pastors don't wait until Saturday night to throw something together while they're watching some basketball game on TV. Faithful pastors don't glean their sermons from online sermon mills, which is really easy to do. Faithful pastors don't simply keep a three-year cycle of sermons that they regurgitate and then move on to the next church and regurgitate those those three years of sermons also. No, any pastor worth his salt takes his responsibility seriously and labors throughout the week seeking to understand the word of God so that they can proclaim it, explain it, and apply it to the sheep that are under his care. A few years ago, I was encouraged by this one statement and I, I kind of took it as my own, as my own prayer, as my own passion for ministry. It says this, Dear God, help me to be a faithful expositor of your word and to love your people so much that I smell like sheep. 
and it just encompasses this pastor, teacher, I know some of you say you do smell like sheep, right? right? But it encompasses this pastor, teacher motif that we have here. This picture of someone who labors in the word for the benefit of the sheep and is willing to spend time with the sheep in ministering that word. Now friends, it's really important that we recognize that, that word ministry is critical for the health and the maturity of the church and for the gifts being developed in that church. So in summary, the apostles and the prophets laid the foundation. The evangelists took that gospel and spread it around. The shepherds and teachers build the people of God in the gospel. So Paul now moves from a gifted membership to a gifted discipleship, a gifted discipleship. And here's where this word ministry now begins to, to flourish. Here's, here's its, its work now. Uh, seen, its, its effect going out. Here is what he says. This word ministry is there to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body um, of Christ. Now, if you have an old King James, some of them have changed it now, there was actually a, a, a comma placed in it that caused a lot of confusion, and this is how it read. To equip the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, for the building up of the body of Christ, comma. In other words, the pastor-teacher role was seen now in three different ways. But what's actually going on here is this, this, this teaching ministry, this word ministry is there to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, breath, for the building up of the body of Christ. And it's really important, it seems like a small thing, but it's a really important distinction here because it helps us now know what the role and the function of those pastor teachers is and what the role and the function of those who are under those pastor and teachers for them to accomplish what they need to, having been gifted by God. So the means of growth in the church comes through the equipping ministry of the word of God. The word equip was used uh, in the, the medical world to describe the mending of a bone. It's used in New Testament to talk about the disciples mending their nets so much so that they could use them again. So there's a restorative kind of establishing word that is used so that, so that the people that are being equipped are the kind of people that are being, are being fitted for a particular task, a particular job. So in the same way, these word gifts are used to bring spiritual health and strength to the body and to prepare them for ministry. And now the words of Sinclair Ferguson are helpful. The church where the word of God is expounded and applied is the power of the, uh, in the power of the spirit becomes a hospital for the sick and a gymnasium to build up the spiritual strength and stamina. Now friends, th this, this instruction here shoots down some of the common models of church organization. And they may not necessarily be models that, that the church started out to think through and say this is what we want it to look like, sometimes it was. But there are two in particular I want to identify here. Um, and, and I don't think necessarily a church would say, well, this is our model. But by looking at it, this would be the model. And the first one is what I'm calling the pyramid. The pyramid. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's not up there, but it's called the pyramid. Where the pastor uh, or the, you might want to say, leaders of the church function in, in overseeing this hierarchical structure that goes all the way down to the ground floor. 
And so you have these sheep that are kind of working their way up in this hierarchical structure, trying to find their place. And it's like, ooh, now I'm doing this. Well, I'm now a committee leader. Ooh, I'm now over two committees that, you know. And, and, and so there's this kind of hierarchical structure going on where the, the pastor may be that guy on top who's ruling down, or it might be the leadership of the church as a plurality or looking down. And so there's this hierarchy going on. And um, this, this model is simply not found in the Word of God. The structure is simply not there, but it is often the case that churches function that way. Another one is this. You might relate to this one. Uh, the church being like a bus, where the pastor or the church leadership um, are the ones who are doing all the driving, and all you need to do is get on board. And what you do then is, you know, what a, what a, what a, a sheep does, I know it's kind of a, two images now kind of interchanging, right? But So you get on the bus and you find your place to sit. And when you find your place to sit, there are other people that sit around you, and you're kind of like your own little group. And the pastor's up there, or the church leaders are up there. They're driving the bus. They're taking it where it needs to go. And then the bus stops, and someone else gets on. And they start walking down the middle of this bus, and what are they doing? They're trying to figure out, where am I going to sit? And you're sitting there with your friends, and you're kind of looking up, and you're like, oh, someone new. Oh, okay. Well, Oh, I don't know, I want them to sit near us. Maybe they'll sit up in the front somewhere and, you know, away from us. And The point is, all this stuff is going on, and we just let the pastors do what they do. We're just along for the ride. But neither of these models reflects the kind of activity that verse 12 is talking about. No pastor or group of pastors can do all the work in the church that needs to be done, no matter how gifted they are and no matter how talented they are. These teaching gifts are given so that the church, so that each individual can be mended and developed for ministry. The goal is to prepare people for ministry. So these teaching gifts are not just up there to say, wasn't that just a great sermon? You know, I don't mind if you say, Pastor, that was really helpful, I'm thankful for that. But what I really want to see is the word of God taking root in a life so that you are being built up so that you are growing, okay? It's not like, wow, that was really great. That illustration was so fantastic. No, it's are you going home and is it, is it taking root in your life and is it helping you to grow your giftedness? Now, teaching gifts. This is one reason why my title at this church is teaching pastor and not senior pastor, okay? Because so just kind of thought through some of these, these structures. God's given me the responsibility to be a teaching pastor. We wanted to emphasize that as part of the role, teaching and training people for ministry through the preaching and teaching of God's word. Now, This is also why I'm working with a group of men um, who believe that they have, uh, they have the gift of teaching and we're working through them and we're giving them opportunity to to uh, work on that preaching gift, that teaching gift in the context of church. We've already done it uh, once, um, and we're going to do it a second time as far as the Titus is concerned. And, and friends, we ought to be really, really encouraged. I, I have no problem giving my pulpit up to people in the church, men in the church, who have a desire for a, a teaching ministry, who are gifted in that way to develop their gifts so that we can have more people who are equipped to train uh, the body of Christ for the work of the ministry. We want to be developing that. And we want to be thankful for that. It's unusual, actually, to have as many guys as I have working with me in that endeavor. I'm actually really excited about that. Um, but we want to see that take place. Why? Because that means there's more opportunity for equipping going on. 
There's more opportunity for people's gifts to be nurtured and strengthened and matured. And so, um, you know, teaching gifts then equipped for ministry. Individuals are there, having been equipped, able to build up the body with the use of their gift. That's the idea that's going on here, okay? So the bottom line then is that each Christian believer should be involved in some kind of ministry. Now, notice we don't have a board in the back. This is not a targeted message to say, look, we have a bunch of things up there. We want you to take one off as you leave today. Much ministry, if not most ministry that goes on in the context of church is not formal ministry. You're not going to find it listed on the website. You're not going to find a little card that says this is what we want you to do. A lot of it might be, you know, I just want to be a help in the body of Christ. And when you hear something, you're, you're part of that mobilizing team. We have a, a number of people here, when someone is sick, there, there are meals that are made. All right? And then those meals need to get to those people, right? And, and you guys are fantastic. It's just mobilizing. Say, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll do that. But these are not necessarily things by saying, well, you need to come to the, uh, the, um, the committee meeting that's talking about uh, the meals for this particular family and we're going to start by a word of prayer and call the meeting to order and so we can talk about it. You see, we can get so formal in this kind of stuff when really it's just very, very organic. All right. Now, there are some formal things that take place in the church. There need to be, but don't think of it just in those terms. In fact, one of the books that we encourage you to, as, we, as we kind of began this church was a book called The Trellis and the Vine, and in there it talks about how, how we are so, so framed to think program rather than just taking on ministry endeavor. And, and, and the, the, the person writing it says, so this couple comes into the church and say, we want to be used, how can we be used? And automatically we're thinking, well, okay, we've got youth ministry, you've got children's ministry. And, and he's saying, no, as a pastor, he says, well, there's a couple over there. You want to see that couple over there? Yeah, he says, they're having some marital difficulties. Why don't you just build a relationship with them and, and help them just to, to work on their marriage together? Now, there wasn't some kind of a formal kind of thing that was going on. It's just these are the things that, that happen in the context of a church that is healthy, that wants to see ministry take place. And we can be so formalized that we miss ministry opportunity because we don't allow for that kind of stuff to happen within the context of the church. And so the goal for equipping in this passage is found in verse 16. Look at it. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. Okay? So the, this training, this equipping, has the goal of each part, each member working properly. Now that doesn't happen overnight. That happens over time. As the word of God is understood, as the word of God is cleaned, as the word of God is applied, as questions about the word of God being applied come up and, and then there's more training that takes place, these things develop over time, but this is the goal, that it, every part is working properly. So Christ has given us all gifts and those with teaching gifts are called to equip the members of the body of Christ so that they, that is the body of Christ, the members of the body of Christ, will be growing and working properly. And so now Paul moves from a gifted membership to a gifted discipleship, and that leads us now to a gifted maturity, a gifted maturity. As we look at this section here, um, we will see that these word ministries um, that are equipping the saints for the work of ministry with the goal of bearing fruit in mind is gonna be seen for us 
with four goals, or the four, might want to say, kind of fruit of these things that would be maturity in the body of Christ. The first one is found in verse 12. Until we all attain the unity of the faith. So the first one here is unity. But it's not just unity independent of anything else. It is the unity of the faith. And what is the faith that is being talked about here? Is it your subjective faith? No. It is that objective faith. If you go back to verses four through six of this chapter in this context, you see this, you know, the, 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 the one Lord, the one faith, the one spirit, the one hope. These are all foundational doctrinal principles that are the body of faith. Jude 3 says it this way, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Okay? So we will become grounded together as we, as we are maturing. This is the picture of maturity. It's being grounded together with the solid foundation of God's truth that we are building upon. So we're growing in our understanding of the faith, and that unites us together. How many of you believe that Jesus is God? Okay, we are united together in that. You see what I'm saying? And as we, as we go down the path of doctrinal truths, we are united together, as well as how do we deal with issues in life. We, as we open up the word of God, we see what God reveals, and we then are united together, and this happens through word ministry. Then, next one is knowledge. And the knowledge of the Son of God. Now this knowledge is not head knowledge. If you remember when we were here for Resurrection Sunday, um, we looked at Philippians chapter three and verse 10 where Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. And the idea of this knowledge is a, an intimate personal knowledge. And so there's this personal relationship with Jesus Christ that is going on that is built on this unity of this faith. And so maturity then um, is seen by people who are united in the faith but also growing experientially. And I don't mean that mystically, but just day by day um, being obedient and listening to what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying through his word. They are being built up. And that moves us then to this next one, that would be Christ-likeness. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How many of you um, have in your house a, a wall or a door where you have the markings of your kids as they grew up? It's like, and here they are when they were five, and here they are where they were six, and you see that, and then, of course, they're all comparing with each other, right, and all this kind of stuff. You're trying to figure out the measure of their stature. And our goal as God's children is to, while we are being equipped, and as we are being equipped, to, to see ourselves grow in our stature as compared to Jesus Christ. If there were a door, so to speak, with notches on it that were notches of Christ, we would be measuring ourselves up to that, and hopefully we would be growing up to be more like Jesus Christ. That's the idea that's going on here, okay? Now, what does Christ-likeness look like? Well, I think one way you could, t you could talk about Christ-likeness would be reflected in things like um, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter five, verses 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. Now, this is both an individual Christ-likeness, but it's also a Christ-likeness for the church. 
This is individual, but this is also corporate. In fact, more of what we have here in, in, in Ephesians is, is of a corporate nature to, to emphasize the unity in the body of Christ. And so the goal is for both individuals and then uh, ultimately the church to grow up into maturity, into Christ-like character. You could even add in that those, those four attitudes that are there in, in, at the beginning of chapter four. That's it, humility and gentleness and patience and, and forbearance. These are all things and attitudes that are Christ-like. And so the question I have for you is this, are you pursuing the goal of spiritual maturity in your life? Is that something you have out there that, that you say, I want to be like Christ. I want to be diligent to pursue being like Christ. Is that how you're praying for, for Gateway? That we would be united in the faith, that we would be walking with Christ day by day, that we would be becoming like Christ. Now the next result or goal of the equipping is extremely practical in nature. He's talking here about growing up, but what he gives us here is a negative, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I, I do not mean to, to, to be unkind, but uh, in my years in ministry, you know, sometimes I'm less scratching my head when, when people who have been sitting under the ministry of the word in a church that is evangelical, and, and they're picking up a contemporary book that has a Christian label to it, and they're reading it and thinking, this is fantastic. And I'm thinking to myself, what are you doing? Where's the discernment? But what happens is people get, they get drawn away because it's, it's Christian culturally acceptable. Other people are reading these things, and oh, this is wonderful, it's great, and yet it, it veers from the path of orthodoxy. And yet people are, 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 are being sucked into these things. I mean, even this year, there's just been books and there's been movies, there's been things out there. You're just like, wait a second here. This, does not, this is not a reflection of what it means to, to, to live a life that is glorifying to God. This is not something that is found in Scripture at all. We need to be discerning. And what happens is when we are children, we are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine. What happens to be the next thing blowing in Christian culture? You know, what's gonna happen, you know, in five years? What's the next, you know, phase that's gonna happen? Do you guys remember the thing called the emergent church? Well, where is that today? You know, I don't know if you know the name, you know, Rob Bell. You know, he was like the big guy, you know, five, ten years ago. Oh, you know, Rob Bell, Rob Bell. Well, where is he today? Because there are these fads that move in and out of Christendom. And Fred's hear, hear this. What God wants us to do is see that we, we need to be founded on the authority of the apostles and the prophets. That is where we find our sustenance. But it's a worldly, sinful thing that says, what's the latest new thing? No, we should just be gleaning from the word of God, growing in the word of God. And friends, there's, there's always something that's gonna be flying into Christian culture, that's gonna be on the radio, that's gonna be a, you know, Christian pop culture, and oh, that might be the latest thing and then it'll just kind of disappear. I have a little book we've been passing around jokingly um, that may, you may have read a number of years ago called The Prayer of Jabez. Um, I think The Prayer of Jabez has become the white elephant gift that no one wants anymore. Okay, I'm saying because it was, it was a distortion of what that prayer was all about. 
It was a mantra to say, if you just pray this prayer in this way, God's going to guarantee these things. And that's not the point of that prayer at all. But Christian culture had T-shirts about it and armbands about it and videos about it and all sorts of stuff about it. But friends, it was just blowing in Christian culture, and it blew out. But the word of God stands sure. And so what needs to happen is the word of God needs to be ministered. That is where equipping takes place. And the word of God then produces in people maturity. It helps them to unite on that faith, to have this relationship with Jesus Christ be something that is ongoing day by day. That there would be this growth toward Christ's likeness and there would be some discernment of a grown up that they would not be drawn away by these winds of doctrine or human cunning or craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, I remember when my children were young, we went to the doctor and you know, they, would, they would weigh the child and they would pinch the child with the calipers and do all this stuff and we're trying to find out you know, what's the percentile here. You know? We don't want to be too high and we don't want to be too low, right? So the, you know, maybe the doctor comes in and says, you know, the percentile of your child is like five. You need to feed this child. This child is malnourished. Um, okay, sounds good, but you know, they, they like cheese puffs. And you know, um, you know, you go down the list. What you may like isn't necessarily what's best for you, right? Broccoli is good for you. If you're an adult, just broccoli's good for you, okay? Right? Broccoli's good. I had to learn it. I didn't like broccoli. And then I fell in love with broccoli. I like broccoli a lot. Cauliflower, it's great. Especially with loads of cheese, you know? I mean, that's just, <laughs> just the best way to do it, right? But these things are, these things are good for you. But you know, as, you, as a child, sometimes they're, they're hard to swallow. I mean, you, you're like, oh, it tastes a little bitter. Or it's, you know, maybe the texture's a little weird or something like that. And we probably all had kind of weird things like that going on when we were kids. I think the same is true even with young believers. I don't want to hear all this, this hard stuff. Just give me this, this light, easy stuff. is isn't the, the way that, that Christianity should be. I mean, you know, Jesus brought me good news, not hard news. Yeah, it was good news that showed you why you needed good news. But now that you have the good news, you have the awareness to see what you really were and what you are and what God wants you to do now. And so... As adults growing in the Lord, we're, we're, we're able to, to chew on things that are maybe a little bit more bitter. It's okay to reflect in your own Christian life to see if there's sin there and to say this sin shouldn't be there. What do I need to do to root it out and to think through things like forgiveness and whatnot? The point here is this. We cannot maintain a diet that is a malnutrition diet. That is left for children well, children should have a, a good nutritional diet, but it's different than what we as adults should have. So as we, are we as individuals malnourished because there is a famine of healthy food served when it's time to eat? Are we feeding on processed foods rather than a healthy, balanced meal? You know what I'm talking about, right? Cheese whiz. It does the job, right? <laughs> are we feeding regularly, coming to meals when they are served and benefiting from a healthy and robust diet, okay? These are all things that the church is doing. So we, we can't but help to see that there's, there's a connection here. Maturity comes through the exercise of the teaching gifts. 
That is not saying, ooh, listen to Pastor Rod. That's saying, listen to the word of God preached and explained and exposed and pressed home. Remove the teaching gifts and you will not be equipped for ministry. Is that where you want to be? Water down the teaching gifts. In other words, change the content and you will become malnourished. Replace the teaching gifts with psychology or humanistic thinking or religion or legalism or moralism and you will be empty of any nutrition at all. You'll be left with a bunch of preschoolers who don't know how to behave or to make wise decisions and you'll only pursue a warm and fuzzy grandpa-like God. My friends, that's it's a challenge, but it's important that we see the importance and the priority of these teaching gifts, and that moves us then to the fourth thing, this, this, this gifted environment, I'm calling it, a gifted environment. When there is faithful exercise of teaching gifts, each individual member will be equipped to use their gift for the work of the ministry and so build up the body of Christ. The result of the process of church growth is to establish and maintain a healthy environment where two primary attitudes are present or taking place. And we're gonna look at them here. The first one is truthing, truthing. I know it says speaking the truth in love, but literally the word behind it means truthing. It's just kind of truthing is, is happening in the context of that church. So rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so the idea here is that we have an atmosphere where speaking truth and doing truth are both taking place and you know what and the church likes it. Where where we're not afraid to say, you know what, I need I need to talk with you because um, there, there seemed to be a conflict and I want to resolve that conflict and we're, we're grown up enough that we can have conversations like that and we can speak truth, we can truth in the things that we say and we can truth in the things that we do and a mature body of Christ is able to interact over those things and find resolve and find purpose and find growth together. Why? Because they're able to talk about those things. You know what it's like to be in the context of a church where it's like, oh, I don't know if I should say anything and I shouldn't say anything and, and, I, and you know, I did and you know what they said and all that kind of, and it just goes, it gets really, really nasty because there's an environment that isn't focused on speaking the truth in love. But here's the thing, you can't speak the truth in love if you're not mature in the Lord and if you're not being equipped by the word because if you're not being equipped by the word, you may not know the truth. And if you're not being equipped by the word and becoming mature, you may not have the grace that is necessary to speak the truth, how? In love. So these are all the atmosphere that is the result of all these things taking place. There's another aspect here going on here that is important for us, and that is this atmosphere of depending or dependence, okay? And it's a dependence in love. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is it equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's the body here, having been equipped and having been being fashioned by word ministry, taking, out, taking that seriously, seeing that bear fruit in life and the practice of those gifts, then everyone who is a part of that church, everyone who has been 
given that gift, verse seven, now is exercising that gift, and you have now this dependency on various members of the church that is providing health and resource to that whole church. We are depending on one another. We need one another. And so the greatest picture of unity that Paul gives us here is this church that is functioning in this way. Speaking the truth in love, totally dependent on one another. Because they're being fed and nurtured by the word of God and as a result have grown up. Now isn't that the kind of church you wanna be a part of? Well for that to be true, it means that we need to have people in that church that wanna see those things take place in their lives too. Now I wanna close with a couple of thoughts here, okay? Number one, the word of God is central for ministry. The centrality and priority of word ministry for the health and growth of the church is so important, friends. The preaching of God's word is becoming less and less in vogue these days. All sorts of other things are are seeking to take its place. And if there is preaching, it's less likely to be the kind of preaching that is taking you to the word, that's showing you what the word says, that is looking at the context and trying to discern what is the word, what is God saying to us through that word. It's usually and it's often the kind of preaching that uses the word of God, takes you to the word of God to prove a point, but isn't necessarily exposing the word of God for what it is saying. There's a huge difference there. But faithful word ministry is like a healthy daily diet. We need to be thankful for it. We need to eat everything that's on the plate, even the broccoli. We need to be sure that we are digesting it. Not having a spiritual bulimia attack. When we leave, it's like, oh, I want that. Right? No, we, we, need, we need to be digesting it and saying, this is the nourishment that I need. Your maturity, our maturity, is directly related to the kind of intake of the word of God that takes place in our lives. And by that, I do not mean just pouring raw scripture into your head, but I mean the, the, the sitting under the, the preaching, the, the full-orbed preaching and teaching of God's word that fashions and shapes a person toward maturity. So the word of God is central. Secondly, the body of Christ is organic. And I realize that's kind of a contemporary word. But um, the the church is not like a hierarchical pyramid at all with heavy hitters on top and the rest ranked in organized submission below. It's not like a bus where the pastor or the elders do all the driving and the rest of the flock just gets on for an enjoyable ride. But I would propose to you that the church is more like an orchestra where everyone has a part to play if the music is to sound as the composer intended. And it's important that everyone plays from the same score and so do what that score says. And it's important for a conductor to guide the orchestra through the piece in order to bring out what the composer has written. Only then will the music come alive and only then will the sound 
match the intention of its creator. What would it be like if there's an orchestra and there's a conductor leading the orchestra and all of a sudden, you know, the first violinist just says, you know, stands up and starts playing their little jig. Well, I want to, you know, this is what I wanted to do. Yeah, but that's not what the score says. Okay, so there's this, this picture of this, this orchestra playing together. There's a conductor that's there that's guiding that orchestra in the score and seeking to understand the composer as he wrote the score out and, and getting the, the picture and the image in his, in his thinking about the, the nuances of the, the different lines of harmony and melody and sounds of instruments coming in and out and that conductor is putting all those things together and seeking to be accurate in his portrayal of that composed piece of music. That is what God is calling us to be like if I can give an illustration to kind of paint a picture. We're all playing. We're all instruments. And those who have teaching ministry are in the front, in the sense, making it all kind of work, so to speak. The third thing is this. God calls us to be Bible-obeying churches. Now, I know we want to be Christ-centered. We want to be gospel-centered. But the assumption is in this text that as we listen to the word of God and are equipped by being obedient to that revealed word, it is obedience to that revealed word that is the means by which we move on toward maturity. I can hear it, but if I don't do anything out of obedience to it, then, then I'm not gonna be maturing. And so it's important that we, we, we bring back this word, I know it's, it's, it's a tough word, it's obedience, right? Oh no, now we're getting legalistic, right? No, not at all. God's given us his word so that we will listen to it, but having listened to it, that we will do what he says that we should do, which means we need to be obedient. And we need to seek to be obedient to his word. And when we are obedient to God's word, it will produce in us the fruit of unity. So friends, we, we, we can't just kind of create unity we're already united, but we can maintain unity by being the kind of church that is exercising its gifts, that is being equipped in those gifts, that is maturing with those gifts by virtue of submitting those gifts constantly to the word of God and exercising those gifts so that we're helping the body of Christ be what God wants it to be. And there's this wonderful picture then of unity that comes when a church is functioning together for the glory of God. So here then is the summary of verses one through 16. We have a united theology that produces united attitudes of humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance so that we can use our God-given gifts to equip the saints through the word and to build up the body of Christ. May you be a faithful member of that church and may Gateway be a faithful example in endeavoring to be that kind of church. Lord, help us today to contemplate the seriousness and the weight of what Paul is revealing here. It is no small matter for us to be united. It is no small matter for us to maintain that unity and it is no small matter for us to, to, to have as our priority either using our gifts 
in teaching the word of God or sitting under the ministry of the word so that as a church we can be what you want us to be. We all have many parts to play. And Lord, you reveal that in other places in scripture. There's all sorts of different gifts, Lord, that you've given us to exercise and you desire for us to consider what is ours. But Lord, we are not gonna be fashioned and shaped in those gifts unless we are totally submissive to the faithful proclamation of your word. So Lord, may we pray that that would continue at Gateway. May we pray that our hearts would be open and sensitive and eager to hear the word of God preached, to hear it taught, so that we can be fashioned and shaped to be the kind of individuals that are using our gifts in a mature way for the glory of God, that, that we can be the, the kind of church that is taking seriously the role of being the church and being united together. And Lord, may we celebrate an attitude and an atmosphere where we can speak the truth in love and where we can depend on one another in love and see that, Lord, as an evidence of how you are maturing us because of your son, Jesus Christ, and the gifts that he's given us. We praise you today for this great privilege. And Lord, we humble ourselves before you and ask for help to be obedient, to be faithful to what you've given us. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.